a question that I get asked occasionally is, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do I figure this out? I don't want to waste time. How would you answer that question? I often say to people, okay, what's passion to you? Like what, you know, tell me about when you were passionate and tell me a little bit about when you had a purposeful, meaningful, you know, time in your life. The high end of purpose and the high end of passion, David, is what we call hungry. So we want to find a place where we can not only be hungry, we can get hungry and we can stay hungry. Well, Ryan Walter, thank you very much for speaking to me again. Uh, we've spoken a couple times, but most notably and firstly at uh, Tech Canada, you were a guest speaker. So you spoke to me and my peers for about half a day. And that was very inspirational, very insightful. And I was hoping that we could talk a little bit today about kind of cultivating the leader within each of us. Uh, maybe we're not going to be the captain of a Stanley Cup winning ho hockey team, but to many of us, sometimes it feels like the world is unfair. Everything's against me. How do I succeed? Like, what am I supposed to do, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure you've been around the world, spoken to thousands of people, perhaps at this point, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. So I'm sure you're a wealth of experience. But could you just introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, like I'm a kid from Burnaby, British Columbia, just uh, beside uh, Vancouver, and uh, grew up, uh, you know, in minor hockey, loved the concept, fell in love with the people and the process of hockey, uh, made that uh, my profession for 17 seasons, 15 as a player, uh, Capitals, Canadians, Canucks, and then uh, got a chance to go back and coach for a little bit. Um, have loved that process, but uh, I think the thing that turns me on more than anything is to take the principles out of the game of hockey, out of professional sport, and help people apply them into their business or into their family or into their you know personal life. And, uh, and that's, that's exciting. I went back and did a master's degree in leadership business, and we've been training corporate America for 25 years. So that's our primary focus right now. And that's why I get excited about your question, because uh, number one, David, I don't have it figured out. But number two is uh, we're all on a journey trying to figure these things out. And so uh, I love that process. Great. Yeah. Thank you for giving us that background. I'm curious, as someone who's focused on one sport for a long time, what is it about hockey that you like? I think a couple things. I think I love the people. Um, you know, everybody complains about minor hockey parents and, you know, minor hockey spoiled kids and all of that. I don't know. I didn't, I, I saw a different group of people, I guess. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, ours were special. But I uh, love the people around the game. I uh, love their intensity and their initiative. And, and I think about the game, I think one of the things, I, I like the, the competitive uh, side of the game of hockey. You know, when the puck goes in the corner, I love when, you know, one person is six foot four and the other person is five foot six. And uh, the five foot six person comes out with the puck. That, that's, what, that's what really, you know, how, how does that happen? And, and what is the ingredient uh, or ingredients inside the heart and the mind of men and women that allow them to compete at a high level? And I love what you said at the beginning, to not see themselves as victims, 
but to see themselves as having an opportunity to maximize who they are. Yeah, I like that. I think there's a built-in advantage and disadvantage to everything. If you swing, uh, you're vulnerable for attack, etc. So there's always like opportunities for exploitation. Um, now, really quick, I'm just curious, what other sports are you a fan of outside of hockey? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll give you one that I'm a big fan of. <clears throat> I don't watch it a lot, but I'm I'm a fan of the athleticism of basketball, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, and I don't know basketball very well, but I'm just a crazy fan of the the players, you know, that can that can do what they do. I'm a gigantic fan. I don't know why of uh, football. So I, I really enjoy, you know, the CFL and the NFL. And, you know, the NFL, I don't watch much, but, uh, you know, everybody's going to watch Super Bowl. I love love that uh, that time of year. And, and really, I like, you know, one of my favorite games was lacrosse uh, to play. And I think if there would have been an NHL for lacrosse, I probably would have played lacrosse over hockey. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you hit midget lacrosse, midget hockey, and you sort of have to make a decision. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, lacrosse is the national sport, correct? It is. It is, yeah. Why do you think it's not as popular as hockey or some of the other sports you mentioned? I don't know. I, I just hasn't uh, had the opportunity to, you know, to expand I mean, in the U.S., uh, field lacrosse is big on on uh, college campuses, but has never become, uh, you know, a top rings, a top, a top rung sport. One of the things as a, an observer that I find frustrating on behalf of the player are the referees and the human error when there's a wrong call. And sometimes that wrong call is even honored, even with uh, video evidence that it's incorrect. On the part of the player, how do you reconcile that? I imagine that's got to be defeating. How do you like? How do you deal with that? You know, it's interesting. Maybe I've uh, I've had to you know play this game for so long. Uh, you know, I was thinking, I was counting it up. I mean, I started playing hockey when I was six, and uh, ended, and I finished uh, pro hockey at thirty five. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, games played there, a lot of practices, uh, you know, participated in. Well, actually, hockey in this area, David, has really helped me to grow up. And I say that carefully because external circumstances cannot dictate my internal desire or my internal goal. And so I see referees as external. I see them as going to make mistakes. I see them as uh, people doing the best they can do. I don't think a referee's call, you know, unless I'm very naive is uh, he's he doesn't come into the game and say boy i'm going to screw this team today <laughs> you know he, he typically comes in to want to do the best job or she does come in to do the best job possible so external circumstances are something that i you know and i'm, I'm not saying i'm perfect in this area but i try to not focus on i try to focus on uh in the certain situation that i am in uh, how do I maximize my ability and uh, how do I get the best out of me? And and then, you know, whatever happens, happens. In the moments where you might have a flash of frustration or vulnerability, uh, where, where you might regress to something like, oh, the world's not fair in those moments, 
I imagine there's a split second grounding that happens in like a champion's mindset or a high performing athlete or CEO's mindset. And this uh, kind of dovetails into my next question. Uh, hockey, I don't know about these days, but it used to have a reputation for being a little bit violent. Like some of the favorite things that people would watch are like the fights and checking other players and stuff. And that physical contact, that, that bit of a, aggression, I think, probably triggers something on the primal level where you feel like it's a fight or flight or survive and you could be shook a little bit. Maybe your aim is a little off. Maybe your strategy takes a hit. What advice or how would you talk to people to get them to observe and ground themselves in those moments so they can reclaim control of their mind and body? It's a very good question. I, I think the fight or flight is uh, so ingrained in all of us that um, it takes time to figure that out and it takes experience to, you know, to live that. Um, I, I know the one thing, like I grew up in a very uh, violent era of our game. I mean, the mid seventies, the uh, Philadelphia Flyers were, you know, the broad street bullies. They were in charge of the NHL. <clears throat> but what people don't realize unless they played during that time that you know, the Flyers were tough, but Boston was tough and the, the, you know, the Leafs were tough and the Canadians were like, it was every team that played a very tough game. So it wasn't just one team. And, and I guess what happened is, you know, we had to make some choices in those days. You either showed up uh, or you didn't. And, and if you didn't show up long enough, you were, someone else showed up for you. <laughs> So it's not an easy thing. I totally get the focus on, you know, violence and it shouldn't be and we should change the rules. <clears throat> and when we can change the rules, I'm in favor of that. I think the NHL right now, hockey in general, but the NHL right now is much different, right? It's much faster. It's, it's, it's less violent. It's, it has violence, but it has, it's a different violence. It's, it's not fisticuffs. So um, it's interesting. I mean, you and I have to play the game that's in front of us until the rules change. And, ho and hopefully we can be part of that process to change the rule. Okay. Regarding culture, you've played both sides of the border. Is there any big difference between playing for an American team versus a Canadian team? Or is it hockey first and foremost? No, it's a, it is a big difference. Or it was when I played there. Maybe it isn't now because... Um, when was the last time that a Canadian team won a Stanley Cup? Boy, that's a long time ago. You know, I, I think it was, what, 90-something, 90 93, the Montreal Canadiens. And so um, uh, I do think there's a difference. For example, when I played with the Washington Capitals, um, the, the, the articles that would come into the newspaper, the Washington Post, let's say, uh, were positioned next to the obituaries, <laughs> right? Like, like it was Just way, right? It was way down. Uh, you know, first you had uh, 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 you had football, baseball, basketball, then you had uh, college football, baseball, basketball, and then way down the end was the NHL. Now that has adjusted. You know, I mean, things are better now at uh in in uh in professional in professional hockey certainly in the u.s <clears throat> but i think there is a different feel uh, players playing in the u.s uh don't i i don't believe feel the pressure uh that canadian players do uh to win uh, a game or i'll give you a better example 
in when I was playing in Montreal for nine years, like if you didn't win a Stanley Cup, you had a bad season. And I'm not sure that's true. Uh, that type of pressure is true in, you know, uh, Florida or in Texas. Okay. And how important is storytelling in building a team? Well, I love storytelling and uh, I always, uh, you know, recommend to leaders to, you know, to get good at journaling because if you don't write the stories down, you can't tell them. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I was in the NHL, I was journaling <clears throat> and I, I'm so thankful I wrote down, you know, key, uh, stories. Um, I get paid, you know, thousands of dollars to tell five key stories, you know, at sales conferences. And what if I hadn't, you know, wrote those stories down? I think you're, you're onto a good spot here. You know, leadership is, is about, you know, the stories not only of our business or of our family or wherever we're leading, but it's also about communicating those stories so that people, the broader group, whether it's culture or it's clients, can actually have a feel for who we are and, and what, what is the best that we can play. So, yeah, I think story is huge. I've noticed that myself, and I think if I'm speaking for all of us, uh, we tend to think in like categorically uh, a little bit binary, sorting things out, like you're a hockey player, uh, that's all you'll ever be kind of thing. And I, I see these days change coming so much more rapidly where I think the entrepreneur, like the entrepreneurial mindset is going to appreciate where we need to start to think about how to repackage the the life of a, of a hockey captain into new use cases. And I was curious, have you thought about that? And what advice would you give to someone that needs to think about how they might use their skills or experience in a new way? Yeah, I think, uh, boy, you hit, you hit uh, probably, you know, my sweet spot in that I don't know what I did right or what I did wrong. But, you know, I've had to migrate out of the game of hockey into broadcasting, out of broadcasting into, you know, what I would call professional speaking. You know, I was an entrepreneur in the middle there. I had a couple of businesses and then have really migrated out of professional speaking, although I love doing that, into what I would call now professional training. Um, you know, so, so, you know, somebody said, a client said to us the other day, and I'm very thankful for this, he said, Ryan, you've become a world-class trainer of leadership. So I'm very thankful for that. I think the first ingredient for me, and I can only tell you what happened to my wife, Jenny, and I, is, in, is the ingredient of curiosity, right? Of, of, of really, number one, being aware, so awareness of where I'm at. And then number two is envisioning or being curious around what could be. And I think that that, for me, leadership in 2024 starts with curiosity. And that, that way, uh, if, if that's true, then what happens is we start to ask uh, brilliant questions, right? You know, to David, to other people, to people that are doing the job that I want to do. And with those questions, we get, we take in information, we take in ideas, and we sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't say manipulate the ideas, but we certainly uh, utilize those ideas to build that new future. There's a, a, a leadership development guy that said the leadership is inspiring people 
to a better future. And I love that thought, right? Is, is what is the better future? I tend to, David, also be a today, tomorrow guy. Like, unless you take me back into the NHL days, I hardly remember being there, right? I tend to be, you know, there's uh, Benjamin Hardy talks about, um, you know, his future self. And, and, and to, to build the perfect today is to go to the future and see who we are and then come back from that and design our, you know, our, our day. So that tends to be me. I don't know why. I think God created me that way. Uh, but that tends to be my strength. So I think in a way, uh, the curiosity along with, you know, sort of understanding where I want to go and where I was has been very helpful. I think balance is very important and something that eludes us often. And I think of all the options open to us regarding a passport or social media where we can just reinvent ourselves in different places. And on the one hand, I think that can be helpful, but like most things taken too far, it also has its own uh, problems. In a hockey team and perhaps sometimes in a business and certainly in a family, you don't get to choose who you're surrounded by. There's that adage, be intentional with who you surround yourself with because that's what defines you. Or you are the sum of the people you spend the most time with. But on the other hand, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to make the best of what the, the hand that you're dealt. A, how do you navigate? How do you identify that difference? What's changeable and what's not? B, how do you make the most of the hand that you're dealt? Yeah, lovely question. Thank you. <clears throat> the researcher, Ellen Langer, uh, does a really good job in this. Uh, I like the way she positions it. She says, you know, take in all the information you can, make the best decision possible, and then make your decision great. In, in other words, <laughs> make the decision and then make the decision brilliant. So it's almost like what we do after we've made the decision makes it great. Uh, I'm not saying that, that we can't get stuck in, in tough decisions. I mean, that, that's going to happen. But, um, you know, for example, let's say we decide to have a certain relationship. Now we have choices, right? We can say, oh, I made a really bad decision in that relationship. That's an option. Uh, or we can say, okay, independent of the decision I just made, I am going to make this the best decision, the best relationship possible. I love that idea because I think so much of life is not about the decision. It is about the mindset that we take into the next part of that equation, which is the relationship or which is the game or which is right. Like, so, so I think that uh, Langer's onto something. Uh, most of life is about little decisions that we complain about or that we're, you know, we say we didn't make a good decision. And yet I'm wondering if the decision matters less and that our energy going into making the decision great uh, matters more. That's really interesting. That's almost like additive or subtractive sculpting kind of, like you get to the same form, but, but through different methods. I had thought of that, that's, that's helpful. Kind of sticking on the theme of balance, how much of high performance, and that could mean whatever, being a high-performing mom, being a high-performing captain, et cetera, goes into kind of connecting with yourself and aligning with yourself versus recognizing and aligning with others? 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you. You know, it's bang on. We're we're both. Uh, you know, I got to um, recognize that for me to play my best NHL game, uh, you know, I needed to be in a place where the relationship that I had with Jenny was on, right? Where the relationships that I had with my mom and dad were on. Uh, it's pretty hard to be the best you can be, and uh, you know, getting divorced at the same time. Or uh, no judgment here. I'm just saying that that we are we are integrative we are not um you know i i often think of people saying oh you must you know compartmentalize your hockey so you're really good at hockey but you know you you're not so good in relationships or you're not very good with finance or and i get that i think i get we have gifting but i think what you're saying is important is that my inner game needs to be settled for me to play my best outer game uh, so sometimes that is balance. Sometimes for Jen and I, and this is just us, um, you know, the way we start our day and the way we end our day, you know, is sort of the frame that helps us be the best that we can be. So we're up early. Uh, we have a, a process or we have a cup of coffee together. Well, we like to read. Uh, we read our, our the, the Bible together. We like to talk together. So we have our starting point of, of, you know, what it looks like. And it's, it's actually grown to be in around a couple hours now. So we're up at five. We'll probably, you know, get started with our day at seven or eight, uh, you know, with clients. Um, and then we end our day really well together, especially now that it's just her and I. Uh, the kids have all moved on and uh, got launched. And so, you know, it's a simple end for us. We we vegetate in front, of, like many people do. We vegetate in front of TV or, you know, computer. And you'll laugh at me, but I go to bed every night with some British person getting murdered, right? <laughs> like that. that's it. I mean, my wife, Jenny, no, loves British murder. <laughs> so so I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that's the best way. But but I think the idea of having, you know, having uh, boundaries, uh, you know, having uh, that connective um, balance that you talk about um, allows me to be the best I can be as a mom or a dad or a CEO or a hockey player. It sounds like a great grounding to start your day. And that was an unexpected twist in the, the way that you end your day. But uh, does that affect your dreams at all? Are you aware of that? Uh, yeah, that's my problem. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. But <laughs> You know what? I love Jenny so much. I put up with murder. Yeah, yeah, seems to be working for you. Do you are you intentional with your diet by any chance? Being like high performing, thinking in that space. Yes, I am. Uh, but I'd like to be even more. And uh, this year uh, in twenty four, Jenny and I have really turned the page, um, trying to be a lot more connected. To just for me, around less sugar, less carbs. Those are the two things that I love. Uh, and that are not easy to give up, but uh, that's the goal. And, uh, you know, so far, so good. I'm down about 14 pounds since uh, the 1st of January. I'd like to go down about another 20. Congrats. I'm sure you can do it. You've got a, a ring to show you have what it takes to persevere in adversity. Um, so going to your coaching, what are some highlights for you? You, you said that, uh, you know, that really speaks to you and, and it means a lot to you to be recognized in that domain versus filling a stadium and giving uh, talks to many, as I'm sure that's important as well. But could you talk a little bit about some of the, the highlights for you in uh, the one-on-one and -on -one the, the personal coaching? 
Yeah, that's, thank you. Yeah, we, we, I tend to do, as you saw with tech, I do, you know, one to many, uh, and I call that training. And then I do a lot of uh, one-to-one, which is, you know, the coaching aspect. I like both. And I think that both are important and they go together. I think I prefer if you, you were to ask me from a financial model point of view, I think that, you know, one-to-many training, you know, allows us to have a better financial uh, return. But um, I'm wondering if one-to-one coaching uh, doesn't have a better return for the client. Uh, And so coaching for me, excuse me, coaching for me is very powerful because I don't come in as a coach. uh, Let's say, let's say uh, you and I were doing a coaching session. I don't come in and say, uh, David, uh, you know, uh, here's what I'm bringing uh, to you. And I'm going to bring you all this experience. And let me tell you my story. And I tend to start with a diagnostic for the the, co- the the player. So so what does David need? And David, tell me about your, you know, the issues that you have. Tell me about the successes that you have. And then tell me, where do you want to be coached today? Um, you know, uh, Jenny has, my wife, Jenny has an, a natural path and she loves to say this and I think she's brilliant. She says, uh, the patient always knows, right? So it, it's not about me saying, you know, here's what 80% of executives want to talk about. No, what does David want to talk about? And I think that's what I love about coaching because it's about creating, uh, the questions and coming up with the questions on the fly that bring the best out of David and bring the best out of the coaching clients that we have, potentially soften, you know, some things, potentially solve some things. But I think the key element to coaching in 2024 is what we call metacognition. And that is getting the player to think about their thinking versus showing how brilliant Ryan is. That's fascinating. I was playing around with this thought that we have like seedlings of thoughts in our mind that we can't quite water on our own, but that by talking to someone else, they sprout into full-fledged thoughts. Uh, and that seems to kind of map a little bit to what you, what you mentioned, um, the, or your, what Jenny mentioned, that uh, the client always knows and, or the patient always knows. Do you, are, do you often see that where basically your, your uh, clients are answering their own questions? 100%. We, we call it the aha moment, right? You actually see it in people's faces, right? Where, where you ask a question and they go, ha oh, ha, got it, right? Like that, for me, that's the favorite part. That's my favorite part of coaching is, is when I don't tell people what to do, but they, we probe and we ask questions and they get to a place where they go, okay, totally get it. Because when we get that metacognition in place, when we get the aha moment happening, people, along with that insight, they also gather the energy to actually implement what their, you know, whatever insight they have. That, there's so many questions I want to ask you about that. I guess one would be in, in my own experience with uh, people asking me questions or kind of recognizing that maybe I had the answer and I, I wasn't making the decision that I needed to make or something like that. It seems that someone like you, who has a lot of experience speaking to a lot of people in different capacities, would be able to maybe get a few layers of the onion deeper with your questions 
whereas uh, someone else might might not. It's still worth talking to and maybe have aha moments, but but you're able to like maybe align. Um, I, I don't know if this is an apt analogy, but almost like if you're trying to crack a safe, it's like you can get two digits in, in one turn. Um, how, how, how do you, how does that land for you? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think we all bring different elements into our coaching practice. Uh, certainly, uh, I'll give you an element where I'm not, I, I tend to not be the trainer or coach that takes people from uh, 30% performance to 50% performance. And I say that very humbly. I so much appreciate social psychologists that help people get whole. I tend to be the person or the coach that says, no, my experience is from, you know, 70% performance and let me top you up to 99%, right? Like that's, that's my journey. So I think we all bring a different, um, you know, experience, a different uh, opportunity to the coaching realm. And I appreciate other coaches. I'm not saying that I'm the only guy that should coach. I think that we're all at a different place in, in our lifetime. And, and I just happen to have some experience in high performance. So that's where I stick. Why can't we ask ourselves those questions? Like why, why do we need to pay the big bucks to talk to other people, to get them to ask us questions? Couldn't we just ask ourselves questions? Yeah, certainly we can. And this is where journaling really, really helps, right? It's John Maxwell, um, you know, has been doing this a great leadership guru for, you know, probably 40 years. And, and he created the habit that after every lunchtime, so whether he had lunch from 12 to one or one to two, he would spend one hour, uh, uh, he called it up in his upper room with his, his journal and his pen. And that was it. And so he would ask himself those types of questions. And I've been a little better at doing that. You know, why did I say that to David? What, you know, what could have I done better in this scenario? Now, David, you know, you were through our, our six mindset model. The mindset model is a perfect way to journal because it takes you backwards into what we call past negative or future negative. But it also takes you forward into asking questions around past positive focus and future uh, positive uh, desire. And so those are the, 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 the boundaries that create great journaling opportunity, um, you know, especially starting in past positive. What are the things that you're grateful for? What are you thankful for? Like in, in asking those fun questions, you know, what, what else am I thankful for? Like, you know, what, what, what am I thankful for with my spouse or my boss or, or kids or whatever? So I think you can get to that place. Uh, it is called metacognition. It's called thinking about your thinking. But here's what I've learned is that with our attention spans getting reduced in the last 20 years and with social media being so reactive and interactive, most people don't want to do it on their own. Yeah, I don't think we're designed to do it on our own. Is there anything that scares you? Are you afraid of anything? I used to be afraid of death. And, uh, and then, you know, certainly my faith, uh, you know, my Christian faith has really helped that. I don't think about it. I, I think about going to heaven <laughs> instead of going, you know, not going somewhere. 
Um, so that was an area that, you know, maybe was, you know, I would be on an airplane and it felt like the airplane was going down. That would create fear for me. Uh, I think, I think, uh, on a more positive side, I think, uh, I don't fear, uh, too much. Uh, I think I get anxious a little bit for, um, our kids and just that generation growing up. I see a lot of people getting laid off right now uh, in with the different sectors that we work with. Um, and so not so much me. I mean, you know, we're always going to have work, but I, I, I can I get concerned for, you know, a, a young family that, you know, depends on the paycheck and uh, is, you know, potentially in a vulnerable position. So. I don't fear that, but I, I do, you know, I, I can, I concern myself in that area. What we try to talk to uh, executives about is, is fear, anxious, you know, worry actually paralyze our best game. And so the goal of what we call future negative thinking is to see that uh, in the construct or in the frame of, of uh, what we would call a risk assessment. So if we can see that, if we can be worried and then actually develop a risk assessment, which basically is a plan to take you up into future positive. So I, I, you know, when I do that, I try to do that, you know, either for myself or for our kids. Okay, if they were to get laid off, what are their next best options and how can I help them think through that? That sets up my next question very well. I was going to ask you, I, I mentor some folks a bit younger than me. And a question that I get asked occasionally is, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do I figure this out? I don't want to waste time. How would you answer that question? Um, it's a really good thought. In our book, Hungry, our, our recent book, uh, we've written uh, five books now. Uh, we actually build a little process and maybe maybe this is helpful for your your people. Uh, so, so on the north-south, uh, we build quadrants. We all build quadrants. On the north-south is passion. Or, sorry, is purpose. And on the east-west is passion. Um, so, so purpose is a bit of a, a harder element. Uh, but I would ask your clients, you know, what what is purpose to you? What does it mean? And most people say it's a little deeper. It's it's you know, yes, it's where I want to go, but it's also who I am and. You know, they, they take it a little deeper. And then on the east-west is passion. And, you know, I often say to people, okay, what's passion to you? Like what, you know, tell me about when you were passionate and tell me a little bit about when you had a purposeful, meaningful, you know, time in your life. And so they, they sort of get those two words. If you go to the bottom of purpose and the bottom of passion, uh, there's a bit of a hard word there that we want to be careful of. And the word is ambivalence. And so that's where that sort of fits in. And, and we just want to be careful in times of not sure where we're going is that we don't get in that place of ambivalence because that's a low energy, hard to get out of place. If we go to the high end of purpose and the low end of passion, we get to a place of frustration. We know exactly where we need to go in life, but we, we haven't, can't seem to muster the passion to get there, or we're not passionate about certain elements of what we're doing. If we go to the, the, the high end of passion and the low end of purpose, 
is an interesting word. We get entertained. That is a brilliant word for the, the young people of, of, our, of our, our world because most of us can be very entertained. You know, it's, I can sit on my screen, uh, you know, and look at social media all day long. And, and really, have I, have I accomplished my, pur- my purpose, <laughs> right? I, I might love what I do. I'm passionate about it. And then the high end of purpose and the high end of passion, David, is what we call hungry. So we want to find a place where we can not only be hungry, we can get hungry, and we can stay hungry. And I think that those for us are four really good indicators. I'm not telling people how to do it. I'm just in the book hungry. I'm just giving indicators of, of either what you, where you want to be or where you don't want to be. That's brilliant. Definitely be picking up that book. Where can we buy it on Amazon? Anywhere else? You can, you can go to there or you can go to ryanwalter.com and my wife will get me to sign a copy for you. Excellent. I'll hold you to that. Uh, well, I just want to thank you uh, once again for talking to us today. It's, re- it's really great to get your insights. And it's also kind of empowering, I suppose, to know that the answers are within you. And it's just up to each of us to, to make our decisions the best they can be. Listen when we are getting maybe data or evidence that they're, they're not. And reach out to people like you when we could use a hand. So thanks once again. My pleasure. Great, uh, great questions. Great podcast. Thank you.